Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to the podcast. It's episode 452 for August 2nd, 2022. My guest today is Luke Shermer. You'll learn more about him in a minute. We're going to be talking about some things we don't always or often talk about here on the podcast, the world of software, um, agile, lean startup. We're, we're not going to take a deep dive into all of that, but it's really about you know entrepreneurship and innovation. And uh, you know, I think one of the main reasons uh, Luke and I connected here is that he's been an adopter of the process behavior charts methodology that I wrote about in my book, Measures of Success. We're going to talk about his application of that method um, to different metrics and, and software, and I hope this is a, of interest to people working uh, in different industries and fields. So if you want to find um, links uh, for more information, you can look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 452. Well, hi, everybody. Again, welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Luke Shermer. He is the founder of Launch Tomorrow. He helps new technology products get to market faster, even if you're working remotely. And his website is www.launchtomorrow.com. Luke is the author of the books Align Remotely and Launch Tomorrow. And he's the host of the highly rated podcast, Managing Remote Teams. So look for that podcast wherever you're listening to this one. Uh, He comes from a product management background. He has a BA in economics and English from the University of Pennsylvania. He's coming to us today uh, from Poland. So while it's morning for me, good afternoon to you, Luke. How are you today? Very good, very good. I'm excited to speak to you today. And uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's definitely a quite warm, <laughs> warm day here. So, yeah. Well, thank you for, uh, for joining us. And, you know, there's a, a lot to cover today. You know, I think there's an interesting intersection between the work you do and, and some interests of, of mine around entrepreneurship and metrics and, and process behavior charts and so that's music to my ears when we started having some conversation um, about process behavior charts. Um, but, you know, first off, you know, in, in terms of backgrounds, I usually like to ask guests a, a bit of an origin story question of, you know, how did you first get introduced to methods related to, uh, you know, improvement, whether you want to frame that as, as agile or lean startup or other methods, or maybe it's an amalgamation of all of those. Tell us a little bit about how you got started with this type of work. Yeah, I I kind of fell into it out of an interest in especially early stage innovation, but in general new product development. Um, I think that that kind of so called originally uh, originally called fuzzy side of innovation, like that that especially kind of twenty thirty years ago when I was getting started, it was just meant always cited as this kind of black hole where lots of time would be wasted, <laughs> basically. Um, and yeah, so um, I think as I as I got more and more into specifically products, um, being um, uh, kind of di- digging into digging into exactly how how the how teams produce produce features. Uh, this is of software. Uh, and then also from the from the other side, what what features are worth producing in the first place? And those are the the kind of the the constant questions of a of a of a software product manager, certainly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So there's this question of like, do you want to do the wrong things more correctly? 
building, <laughs> right? Building the wrong features or building the wrong product or building the wrong company in a better way, right? There's those key questions, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It, um, yeah, kind of min minimizing that as much as possible. I mean, most of my, most of my time when I drifted into product was, was in financial technology, um, in a, in a hedge fund environment. And, um, when uh, when we were looking at at our internal processes, I mean, this is going to uh, the topic you, you mentioned of, of process behavior charts. Um, when we were looking at our processes of how we were making software, uh, I think the the way that it was really useful to to kind of dig into what was actually going on was looking at how how the team managed to finish things over time and and that's that's kind of where we started exploring that um and i i found your i found your book i think originally via via eric reese um and uh yeah, he was kind enough to and he was kind enough to endorse the book yeah yeah, yeah, and uh, absolutely, absolutely loved it as I've as I've mentioned to you before, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean it. It the the tool the tool itself is actually the way that I kind of immediately or what felt like immediately got it is that it's quite similar to uh, relative strength indicators uh, when looking at uh, currencies, modeling how how currencies. Uh, I mean, this is in, this is kind of typical, I guess, uh, financial technology geek <laughs> being yeah. excited. Yeah, about I, I, I don't know about this. So tell tell us about that a little bit. You're you're looking at fluctuations in currencies and kind of trying to filter out signal versus noise. It's 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 kind of it's using the same mental framework, but in a slightly different way. So basically, it's a way of uh, it's a way of forecasting what's going to be happening with with exchange rates, but with the assumption that they 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 revert to a mean. So it's kind of uh, in fact the the quote unquote expected behavior is that they're going to go back to the mean, and then they're only going to fluctuate within within standard deviation bounds uh so it's like uh yeah it's a slightly different tool and yes it's kind of it's it actually probably is arguably a, a much more of a random process than than some of the stuff you'd use a pvc for but um but yeah that's it, it kind of it already i had some sense of uh numerically how that how that would work out when i saw it um and um yeah, I mean that's that's uh, the, the main yeah. So I guess the main the main place where where they they came in handy is that um, uh, you know a couple of couple of different projects where we had quite you know significant delivery pressure around a certain date because that's tied with three other departments that have to coordinate a whole bunch of things with something being done by by some date and then a lot of focus on exactly how quickly work was being done when it's going to be ready. Uh, and I think the 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 risk, which I think you articulated brilliantly, was that if if everyone's super focused on exactly how the team is doing, every little minor fluctuation of, of up and down uh, suddenly makes everybody nervous. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, right. Right. Um, yeah. So 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 it 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 you know it became this very easy way for me to be able to calm down various stakeholders mm, yeah. that uh okay it fell but you know this is more or less 
to be expected. There's always going to be some natural uh, fluctuation up and down. Right. Um, and I wouldn't be too concerned at this point. Um, yeah. And the, so there, 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 there's, 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 there's a point. I, mean, I didn't really make this point too much in measures of success, but it's an old W. Edwards Deming point on this. He would use the term tampering that when managers overreact, ask for explanation to the, the small fluctuations, the noise, the common cause variation, it tends to increase variation <laughs> because of the responses then to that management or that micromanagement. And there's there's an irony there of people would say, well, I don't like the variation, but then they take actions that end up increasing variation. Wonder, yeah. Have you seen that dynamic when, when it comes to some of these measures on productivity or on-time delivery? Um, yeah, I can definitely kind of intuitively sense how that how that dynamic could kind of play out um yeah i mean it's it's if, if nothing else if, if if there is too much variation in in the eyes of a senior stakeholder then you've got a lot more meetings you've got a lot more um discussions and brainstorms and all of that and that's time not actually spent doing the work it's time talking about the work uh, which would, yeah. if anything, reduce productivity. <laughs> well, I, I can see the cycle of, yeah, all those extra meetings are slowing down work and then they see there's a problem and then somebody has a mandate like no meetings for the next two weeks and then productivity, <laughs> might, so, productivity might soar, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is, yeah, there is a bunch of kind of interdependent things going on there, I think, which uh, very much could affect uh, especially downward variability. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, definitely on that front. Yeah, there's, I mean, when we talk about systems and, you know, back to currencies for a minute, I mean, it seems like uh, these exchange rates are outcomes of a system and that system might be stable for a period of time and sort of like a metric, a performance measure in an organization with the process behavior chart, it would tend to be fluctuating around an average and we could predict that that would continue to be true, but then here's the catch unless the system changes yeah, and, and you might not be able to predict the system change. Um, so like with currencies, if there were some sort of, you know, world event or economic shock or something, then that tendency to fluctuate around a stable average might no longer be true. And so I wonder if, if those charts in whatever format would allow you to detect that signal sooner in a way that would be like financially advantageous. If you realize, okay, that assumption is no longer true. I should either buy more of that. Or am I expecting it to shift upward or shift downward? Would I buy more of that currency or, or I don't know what decisions you would make, but it seems like there, there's, there's a similar trap where knowing it's been stable and predictable for a period of time doesn't guarantee that it's that'll going to continue. continue. Right. It yeah I mean the the thing the thing that I remember from uh, speaking with various people I mean this is mostly kind of serving hedge funds I mean they they had this this kind of catch all term of like when all correlations go to one so basically all market <laughs> assets yeah <laughs> go in one direction uh-huh. um, and usually kind of what happens is that at that point almost all of the mathematical tools they have are are useless. Uh, so it's almost like they've, they've, they need, they have models to understand kind of the stable state and then they need 
completely different models to understand what happens in these extreme, let's say, black swan type events, um, and and model that and kind of do, uh, for example, common tools as scenario analysis. So you replay a portfolio of exactly how it would have performed during, say, 9-11 or during just different different world events which would affect markets. Um, and there you've there typically it's not it's not about the currency jumping outside of the standard the one standard deviation <laughs> it's about completely throwing it out the window um so yeah it just it's a, it's a very different way of, of thinking about it at that point yeah so i want to talk a little bit about used a phrase earlier processes for creating software and i'm and i'm you know i'm getting that probably not for this audience but for some people they might cringe at that thought what do you mean a process for creating software um so when when it comes to process and software and you know is is you would read about let's say quote unquote lean manufacturing i'm i'm, I'm curious what resonated with you how did you see that relating to software development or you know uh, entrepreneurship so i think the the biggest shift that's really helped in that context so the main the main unit of measure is something that we call a story point in the software world which is it's kind of a it's a measure of complexity so basically the amount of mental effort needed to be made to create something because unlike manufacturing there's no manufacturing cost or distribution cost once it's built that's pretty much all the costs you're going to have so it's all about managing that and then also making sure that you're building things which are valuable uh that are or that are most immediately valuable um so yeah, so going back to what I did find most interesting, I think um, I really liked uh, in in Womack's book Lean Thinking this this description of different ways of organizing a bicycle factory of like either either you think about planning out a whole order as this big multi-stage project, or you just come up with a way of measuring how do you and reorganizing the work around, you know, minimizing the amount of time it takes to create one bike and then doing it that way. And I think from a process perspective, that's, it's, it's kind of a mind twister, but it's extremely helpful uh, at making, making the, well, one, the work visible to as an early warning signal if something's going wrong and you know works just as well remotely as it does <laughs> in a in an office um and uh yeah and it, and it obviously takes a little bit of effort to do that but to, to reorganize the work that way but that's that's one thing that's super helpful and then the other the other bit that you kind of got for free after organizing things that way was uh something that wasn't in in the traditional let's say agile or well, now traditional agile way of thinking um tax time i think is a super interesting concept where you quantify demands in terms of a rate as opposed to a final outcome mm-hmm. yeah um particularly when it comes to you know managing e- even if it's relative to internal stakeholder expectations if they're if they're expecting you to do uh you know, create something really complicated in, in two months, <laughs> mm-hmm. 
um, like you, it's one thing to say that it's another thing to say that, you know, uh, you're expecting us to go at the rate of 170 story points a week. And, you know, our current rate is 30. So it's like, at that yeah. point, it's, it's much, much more quantitatively precise. I mean, the other question is whether it's accurate. Well, I, I was, I, I <laughs> was going to ask, I, well, I was, I was going to ask you know, a follow-up and explore that where, I, this is where I would I would wonder about the translation of this. So, like, let's say with cars, mm-hmm. that's easily countable. It's very discreet. It's very repetitive. You'd say the market demand is uh, sixty seconds. A new car is purchased. Like that's very straightforward. I would I would bet I would guess customers don't talk in terms of story points. They wouldn't say I want uh, a two week tack time on new features. And then it seems uh, they might say that I don't know, but it seems like you know the story points. It's both an abstraction and an estimate. And I wonder, you know, are there different ways where that can get off track? It's a story point is a unit of measure in the same way right. it's a kilogram or a, or a meter or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, a pound or, or a mile. That's <laughs> okay. We can speak metric here. It's okay. <laughs> um, and then. In, in those units of measure, you can estimate, you can then measure how much was actually delivered, um, you can plan, you can express attack time. So it's, uh, it's used in different ways, I think. Um, actually, so from, from the calculation in terms of attack time is, is actually very similar because it's about the breaking up the overall demand at the end into uh, some kind of a rate. So right. the overall demand is the same. Right. It's just a question of a rate. And, you, and then you can just express it in story points as opposed to cars. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's numerical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but again, like, it seems like there's this estimate element where, like back when I started my you know, career in uh, the automotive industry, when, when work is very discreet and very repetitive, um, General Motors at the time had these, you know, uh, work estimation tools that were very, very precise to be able to even before going and testing something in practice on the, you know, in, in the manufacturing shop. That okay, here, here's a job that could be done in 55 seconds based on how much motion and how much turning and how much weight was being lifted. Um, but then when we get in, into more of the abstract realm. Um, uh, we're we're not dealing with things that can be directly measured like mass or uh, yeah. t- um, so it, I wonder and you know, I always think that maybe this is the, the cynic in me of thinking of the dysfunctions of is there incentive for people to overstate the story points well you want me um, to to follow this user story and develop this new feature well I think it's a large number of story points and then some manager might say, well, no, 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 no. I think, I think that's actually fewer story points. Like, how, how, how would you know, or how would you um, assign that story point number? So there's a, there's a, a standard tool called planning poker. So essentially you're using the dynamics of poker and this is kind of backed up in software engineering research that this very much does help reduce uh, this, this type of gamesmanship that you're talking about after the fact the key is to try and expose that up front when you're planning. And uh, usually the way it works is that when you've got a particular unit of work, you know, a story, a task, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, the, 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 the team who's actually going to do it, discuss it amongst themselves. And then in order to not influence one another, they vote with, with a number 
to estimate roughly how many story points they think it is, uh, what level of complexity is, uh, what level of complexity it is relative to all the other work being discussed, let's say that day, but also relative to everything they've done in the past. And yes, it's very abstract. I, 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 yeah, it, it's it's definitely not a bicycle or a car, <laughs> um, but really, when when we do have these planning estimation sessions, I'd say seventy percent of the time, you'd be surprised. Every, all of the developers vote the same thing, despite not being influenced by one another. Ah, uh, right. And it it's just it's uncanny. It, yeah. It's especially okay. especially with bigger things because with little ones, okay, it's little. Everyone agrees it's little, but like once it's big, that's where you can have the potential differences. And in fact, the whole point of story poker isn't so much the voting; it's the discussions to talk about the variance, uh, to figure out overall as a team what the what the right estimate is and the key is that it's done before you start the work first of all and second of all the estimation isn't done by the managers it's done by the people doing the work in a in a you know relatively low uh ideally low pressure situation <laughs> yeah right it seems like you would want to eliminate fear and other dysfunctions that would lead to gamesmanship or you know, people sandbagging or whatever term you use. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded, I'm thinking of different times when you you would try to use a little bit of wisdom of the crowd of looking for estimates. Um, like I, I've seen like discussion around asking people, even in a healthcare setting, without going out and measuring, which would maybe be better. But let's say if there's certain tasks that don't happen very often, so there's not an opportunity to go actually measure it. And you would ask people, how long does it take to do X? You, you might remove an outlier at each end of those uh, estimates because sometimes people are just bad at remembering or estimating. Maybe, you know, eliminate the outliers and then you say, well, okay, that's there's kind of some consensus there that might be good enough until you can go test that assumption or test that hypothesis in reality. Yeah, exactly. It's it's enough to be useful. Like it's it doesn't need to be precisely down to the sixth decimal point. As long as it's the right, let's say, not quite order, a little bit less than order of magnitude, but as long as it's in the right area, it's enough to um, to get going. And then there's also a cost to spending more time estimating to get more precision. So that's the other side. Uh, so you want enough estimation for it to be useful, but not so much that you spend a week estimating <laughs> <laughs> right. and planning. Uh, yeah. So, and yes. And whereas you could just be doing, doing things, prototyping, building something, that kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. You mentioned the book lean thinking, you know, it seems like um, there's a bit of a parallel when you talk about the design of a factory, you know, Womack and others would write about, you know, a departmental factory layout, um, functional layout of, um, all the welding machines are in one area. All of the cutting machines are in another. All the, um, you, know, you know, and so then things would almost by necessity, uh, you know, kind of burp along through the system in batches, right? Because of these long distances, it doesn't. You, one piece flow wouldn't make sense to somebody who has to carry a bicycle frame a long distance. You're going to accumulate a large metal basket full of frames and then move the basket, but then. You know, I think the, the one key insight of lean thinking is to have a flow-based layout 
or have production cells or even just have, you know, uh, whatever the sequence of operations would be, you know, one, one, one cutter, one grinder, one welder, and just then you could have one piece flow because the machines mm-hmm. are like literally right Lined next up. to each other. Yeah. It seems like then there are parallels to software where people can think about reducing batches and, and thinking of, you know, the, 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 the functional departments and software might be back in the day of collecting requirements, building the software, testing the software like that, that used to be almost like just people thought, well, it had to be a large batch process, right? Can, it, can mm-hmm. you, talk, I'm, I'm curious your perspectives and on some of that evolution of moving toward flow within the design of a software system. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, uh, the, the, I think the overall change that I've seen kind of since the nineties is that before it was very kind of functional long-term state stages of, of, of first, like, like you say, collecting requirements and, and then going through various stages. And then finally, in the end, something goes out to the client. Um, now I think that the move has been very much towards having a cross-functional team, so everything needed to produce one unit of software is within one team. And then it's just a question of how they cooperate amongst each other. And in, in practice, uh, the, way, uh, the way that, uh, that I've managed to, let's say, work on something like Waste is mostly you know, quantifying the time between stages. So basically, at the team level, how long does a particular story or task stay in a waiting state between between each, let's say, not quite functional area anymore because it's specific people or specific groups of people within a team that are going to be handling something. And yeah, and you can very you very much can apply that in a software context. I mean, I, I mean, I had one project where we went down from like an overall an overall uh, cycle time of of like three and a half weeks down to thirty seven hours, uh, where. Of course, after doing a whole bunch of improvements, identifying changes in infrastructure, changes in um, all kinds of tooling, uh, writing code that helps write documentation, like all kinds of different, uh, more more or less insane ways of, of speeding things up, and uh, and and it you know and it really it really did did help quite a bit, and I think the the fact that it was kind of a an observable, collectible, me- uh, collectible measure uh, made it helpful, um, and yeah, I think it definitely shocked everyone that when, when we first started, like the ratio of the amount of time that the tasks would be in a waiting state was like multiple times of what it was, what the actual work time was, and in that context sitting on someone's neck that you know why don't you you know sp- why did you spend so much time developing th- this and that uh is kind of irrelevant because it's not going to be done anyway like because it's because of because of all this, these process inefficiencies um so that's kind of the direction that it's gone i'd say yeah and one other thing i was going to ask you you know curious if this has moved in a better direction or, or how you, you, you mentioned when we first started talking here, uh, I thought it was an interesting phrase. I, I hadn't heard um, the fuzzy side of innovation, thinking back 20, 30 years ago. Um, do you think through different methods, including what we've learned from, uh, you know, Steve Blank and Eric Reese and others, like are, are organizations wasting less time 
when it comes to innovation? Is it less fuzzy because we're we're better at testing hypotheses and making instead of making assumptions? It might be hard to generalize, but what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's again, it depends a lot on on the individual companies, but I think on the whole, there's there's a whole set of there's a whole grab bag of of analytical tooling to help break down something that would before be largely an intuitive process amongst a group of people, uh, kind of the, the kind of skunk works environment, you know, lock them in a, in a dark room <laughs> and tell them to go figure it out. At, le- at least in a corporate context, startups pretty much do that themselves um, or in a garage, right? Uh, lo- location is slightly different, but uh, same idea. Um, and uh yeah and i think i think the th- th- yeah, basically applying a more quantitative approach and a feedback loop approach i think that's that's what's that's what's certainly changed for me relative to you know the stuff that it, you know i would have read in college around innovation in the late 90s for example yeah, yeah. so then there's 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 innovation and in how we go about innovation and you know hopefully these new practices or even new ideas that are being developed now are framed as some sort of hypothesis. You know, we have, we have, we have a theory and I, and I think this is like a really fundamental mindset, just even to bring it back to the work that I'm most involved in around continuous improvement, that there's a huge difference in mindset between saying, ah, I, I have an idea. I know this is a good idea. I know it's going to work like that mindset can get you in a lot of trouble even with the smallest of changes in a workplace, um, as opposed to saying, I've got an idea, what needs to be true for this to work? What assumptions am I making? How do I test this idea? It might not be a good idea. Like, you know, kind of the honest um, recognition of some of those things, I, I, I think maybe sometimes easier said than done that, you know, people could go and study lean startup and different methods and still fall into the, uh, I know my idea is a good one trap. Yeah, there's 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 some kind of kind of individual personality thing going on there mm-hmm. when it happens, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh and and to some extent there there is a little bit of a let's say structured thinking slash numerical skills, uh particularly for the more kind of like experiment construction or something. There's there's some people get it right away. I mean, I've I've run workshops for for people like open workshops on this topic and then like Half of the half half of the half of the people there just just obviously immediately get it, and then there's some that are just like really struggling with 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 mm-hmm. you know um, with certain things simply because they don't they don't feel confident enough uh, in their in their math skills. So it mm-hmm. there's there's a bit of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think my I mean my favorite one is the 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 landing page uh, testing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so so. With landing page testing, essentially what you're doing is you're you're putting up a a web page which describes a product or a service which uh, which either doesn't exist yet or you know you're you're, you're planning to release. You've got, uh, for example, a, a you know a release date or something like that, uh, and um, structuring the interaction that way. Uh, Either at the level of a startup, where you know the whole company doesn't exist and it's kind of a one-product company, mm-hmm. or as a kind of off-brand exercise for a larger company, where uh, they just want to see 
how how the um, how the market would react. And essentially, what you're what you're doing is you're creating a kind of a structured way to gather numerically, test numerically what the kind of market structure is, what the demand is for for something. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's uh, there's there's a couple of parts there. So one thing is what's on the actual landing page and what it, what the thing is, what mm-hmm. the value proposition is, but it's mm-hmm. also what, uh, what segment are you going after? Uh, you know, like, um, what, uh, what channels you use to reach them. I mean, there's, there, there's different sub parts there. And essentially you're trying to get this initial match between a group of people that actually really want one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, before you do anything else and um or at least relatively early on in the process or for example in parallel as you're working on it like i know in in, in healthcare it's definitely a lot more complicated i mean I've, I've worked with medical device startups or something where yeah i mean it's 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 one thing to test demand it's another thing where you're talking about things which which are clearly tied to people's health and <laughs> right. uh and 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 you know um uh yeah so 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 there's there, i think you just need to be really careful in terms of making sure that you aren't doing something that's going to hurt someone uh or well, uh yeah. or, or, or that uh is uh you know the, make sure it's okay from a, from a from a regulatory perspective right. but then yeah. there's even even before you do a full landing page test there's a number of different types of tests you can run before that so for mm. example um a really common issue, especially with tech startup founders, uh, I mean, I work a lot with uh, that kind of like engineering type founders, uh, is that they came up with some widget, <laughs> which uh, which they think is amazing, but because they're so close to it, it's difficult for them to articulate it in a way that is uh, easy to understand for someone. And if someone doesn't understand what the product that's being pitched is they're definitely not going to buy it. <laughs> uh, so I think this is more, this is more of like a, a necessary condition. It's not a sufficient condition. They have to understand in order to want to buy it. But if, if you're trying to enter a market and if your marketing communication <laughs> is completely unclear, then clearly you're going to get a false signal. Like even like it might still be a great idea, but if you can't articulate it, then who cares? Uh, and there's there's a number of uh, ways to ways to do that. Partially, I mean, the, the best is directly with customer directly with customers. Just you know, pull up a web page on a tablet and get get feedback from them. That kind of thing. Uh, or you know, there's different kind of tools originally meant for let's say in, in in like a more of a ux context where they can quantitatively measure how visually clear the layout of a particular landing page is or um yeah or looking at uh, the attractiveness of of the headline or something like that um and and this stuff is important not only in the, not only in the context of testing an idea but i think also like when you are creating something new, I think it's not just that act of zero to one creating something, but it's it's um, especially for a startup like you know the la- its landing page is like the the twenty first century equivalent of a, of, of a of a business card, right? Like this is this is your you're kind of testing your identity <laughs> to some yeah, extent, right? 
uh, and getting that clear and understandable for a particular group. Like there's a lot of testing you can do around that. Uh, yeah. Well, it seems like, uh, I wonder if anyone ever did this with business cards, but you know, A, A B testing or testing and evaluating different alternatives. I don't know if people ever tested like, okay, I'm going to have two different business cards and I'm going to hand them out to people and see which card leads to the most follow-up calls. Like you could do that in real life maybe. Right. It's, I mean, it, it sounds, it sounds like something like a, like a old school direct marketer would do yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Or they'd have a couple of versions, and then they'd yeah go to a big event, and then just see who 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 you know have a different phone number on each one, and then see which one's called or that kind of thing. So yeah, so it seems like there's that trap of of somebody again this difference of saying I know this landing page is good, I know that headline is good, versus I have a hypothesis. Let's test something, or let's test a couple things in parallel, and hopefully you have enough data points to make. A good decision, but I know I know thing one thing that you've worked on and, and thought about is you know how, how do we make good decisions if we have a small number of data points? Yeah, so this this is uh, I think I mean this is kind of the the classic problem with numerical tools it, in in early stage innovation because you you can't um, you can't necessarily afford to do kind of a large scale corporate uh, survey or, or something like that to get to get uh, a full a full picture. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the um, the the two numbers that I find the most useful uh, are five and thirty. So five is kind of this rule of thumb in terms of just qualitative exploration of ideas uh, where. If you go and do five five interviews with uh, with different people in a market, probably you'll get a. I mean, you, you'll definitely learn something every single time, and that 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 uh, every time I've done that or worked with teams, that's always the case, relative to what you knew going into before you did the interviews, and also the actual core idea of something that's super valuable is somewhere in that qualitative data set of stuff that you've heard. Um, and then when you're ready to start thinking about testing, then, you know, it's a question of what's, what's, uh, let's say operationally feasible, like the smallest, the smallest size sample size where you can start reasoning statistically is probably around 30. And, uh, yeah, so the, so, so, you know, you can go and have, have that many interviews with, you know, with people on the street, if you're doing a consumer product or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, uh, that, that gives you something. And then the good thing about having a somewhat smaller sample size is that you can run a lot more experiments with the same number of potential observations. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. yes, it's not as precise and definitive, but at the same time, on the flip side, you can have a much greater variety of experiments and much more yeah. robust learning uh, when you're entering a new market. Yeah. And it seems like when you're evaluating, let's say, a landing page response rate over time, there's a, a time series. There's time series data. There's a metric. You could apply a process behavior chart to that to avoid the situation of saying, well, well uh, the response rate fell from... 14% to 12%. Let's go do a root cause analysis. Like, well, that number might be fluctuating around an average. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think at this stage you're you're very much getting into the realm of traditional uh, conversion rate optimization, which is more of kind of like at this point an established uh, way of looking at it from a marketing perspective in an established company. Whereas the let's say the startup view of landing pages is a little bit different in that you aren't optimizing a sales process that already exists, which is what CRO does. You're you're trying to nail what it is that you want to offer in the first place. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so that's slightly, uh, slightly different uh, way of thinking about it. Yeah. But it seems like there, there would be a number, a flow of different hypotheses baked into even putting a landing page out there of, you know, first, can people find the page? Mm-hmm. Are people interested in learning more? Would they signal like, yes, I would actually buy this, like saying I would buy it versus actually buying it is different. And then, you know, hopefully you've already sorted out the question of can you deliver it? Like you were talking earlier about healthcare, and I was starting to think through if Elizabeth Holmes had started with a landing page for Theranos, a I, lot I, of people fact, would have said, Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> I want all these lab tests done with a drop of blood. But that wasn't the issue. She never delivered, you know, the company never delivered what, on what that she process. was saying. Right. Yeah, exactly. But, um, well, well, well Luke, um, you know, there's, there's, a lot. Uh, we're we're running a little short on time here, so there, there, there's a lot more uh, that we could uh, discuss. But I think we'll have to sort of leave it at this today. But um, I do want to mention again, um, you know, the your your most recent book launched tomorrow. Take your product, startup, or business from idea to launch uh, in one day. If you want to learn more about um, landing page minimum viable products and and measuring and uh, evaluating things there, um, you know, testing ideas as hypotheses. There's a, a lot to explore there. So again, the website uh, for Luke's company is launchtomorrow.com. Uh, and then the podcast is Managing Remote Teams. Um, now, a, a question on the podcast, is that something that you had been exploring and, and talking about well before the pandemic, or was this a pandemic adjustment? It it was admittedly a pandemic adjustment. It uh, yeah, I think I when I saw a lot of things, uh, the initial reaction uh, when I saw a lot of the content showing up online around uh, remote work, I felt was kind of the obviously the first initial thing like what types of tools do you need and all of that. But having worked with remote software teams for quite a while, I, I felt the, the real questions were probably three or four levels deeper, and I didn't really yeah uh, that was that was what i wanted to explore in the podcast basically so so managing remote teams so people will check that out because i'm 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 sure luke you're working with people every day and in how many different time zones Uh, at the moment, not very many, but yes, I've I've worked with with people across uh, thirteen time zones in the past, and it yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, yeah. There's there's ways of there's ways of doing it, but if you can avoid it, obviously that's better. So <laughs> there's remote, and then there's globally remote, like how, how remote <laughs> distributed, yeah. Um, but you know, Luke, thank you for um, you know the the discussion today. Thanks for sharing. You know some of your thoughts and perspectives around innovation and um, and software, and I think there are transferable lessons learned in, in all directions. And you know, I appreciate you sharing with me privately and and, and talking a little bit um, here today about your use of process behavior charts uh, in that realm. So I, I, I do appreciate you um, doing that and sharing that and uh, being here as a guest today. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. 
For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.